1 Corinthians 10, beginning at verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolatrous as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as, as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. This is the very word of God. Let's commit all we do to the Lord in prayer. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together this evening. We thank you for your providential care upon our lives, for all the many gifts and blessings which you bestow upon us. We thank you most of all for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour, in whom we have life. Thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed to us in the Scriptures from beginning to end. Lord, we thank you for your living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you for your written word. And we thank you for the privilege of being able to come together to meet in his name and to learn more of him through the Bible. We ask your blessing on your servant this evening as he speaks to us. We ask you'll take his preparation and give him liberty of spirit and help us as we learn more of the Christ whom we love, to love him more, to follow him more closely and to obey him in all that we do and think and say. For we ask this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's our theme for the autumn lectures this year to continue the theme which we began last year, the person of Christ. And tonight we're thinking especially of the Christ in the Old Testament. And we're very privileged to have with us this evening as our speaker, the Reverend Mostyn Roberts, pastor of Welland Evangelical Church, 
who's no real stranger to the northeast either, if the Teesside area can be regarded as the northeast of England. I think it can. We're very pleased that you've been able to come tonight, and we very much look forward to what you have to say to us. We're going to follow the normal pattern, which is Mr. Roberts will speak to us for about an hour or thereabouts, and then he is content for a period of questions and comments afterwards. So without any more ado, we welcome him and we look forward to his talk to us tonight on the person of Christ in the Old Testament. Mr. Roberts. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, for the introduction and the welcome. It's a privilege to have been invited to um, deliver this lecture. An hour it seems an awfully long time when you announce that you're going to speak for that long, but I'm afraid bitter experience suggests that, for me, time passes very quickly when one starts to talk. So I hope uh, time will pass equally quickly for you. We'll see how we get on. Now, this is a wonderful subject. And uh, the question to be addressed in this lecture is, what was the ministry of the second person of the Trinity in the Old Testament period? I shall not, therefore, be concentrating on the prophecies of Christ's coming at the Incarnation, but ask, rather, where do we see Christ as a person and at work in the Old Testament? My particular focus will be on appearances of God known as theophanies. The best possible warrant for seeing Christ in the Old Testament is references in the New Testament, and I shall therefore begin there. In John 1, verse 3, we read of the eternal word that all things were made through him. The same truth is stated in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15, 17, and Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. The first ministry of the Son of God in the Old Testament was therefore to be the agent of God in creation. There are hints of this in the creation account, God created by the Word and Spirit. According to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the Son also upholds the universe by the word of his power. And in Colossians 1, 17, we are told in him all things hold together. The full personhood of the word is revealed only in the New Testament. Nonetheless, he is there in the Old Testament period, firstly having been God's agent in creation, and then continuously in upholding that creation. We move on to John 1, 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In the context, this is probably not the light of salvation, but of creation. Christ here is the medium of general revelation. Adopting Paul's words from Romans 1, it is through him that what may be known about God is plain, because God has made it plain. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And I suggest that that revelation is through the second person of the Trinity, uh, the Son. The life was the light of men in creation. So far, therefore, creation, the upholding of creation, and general revelation are the work of the eternal second person of the Trinity. Well, we've only just started. That's quite a lot, isn't it, already? What about special revelation? A glimpse of this, and I suggest only a glimpse, may be seen in John 1, 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world, writes John. Now, as John has already mentioned John the Baptist, it seems odd if at this point in the prologue he is referring back again to the light of creation. John 1, 9 is better interpreted as the light of Christ coming into the world at the incarnation. Enlightening everyone, as 
the English Standard Version, which is the standard, which is the version I'm using tonight, by the way, for, for Bible references, enlightening everyone in the sense that Christ is the true light who shines objectively on every man and forces a decision to reject or accept him, which is the context, as verses 10 to 13 of John 1 make clear. Uh, John isn't speaking in terms of universal redemption, in terms of the light of Christ shining inwardly, but shining on the whole world and forcing people to accept or reject. Now, although this verse refers to the Incarnation, uh, taking that with the context of Christ's pre-existence in this chapter, it prepares us for seeing the Word, personal Word, as the medium of special revelation, I suggest, in the Old Testament as well. There are stronger references to this, as I will come to them, but I think we can see here that if Christ is, is the light um, who enlightens everyone as he comes into the world, there's good grounds for saying that this pre-existent word is also the one who will be the medium of special revelation in the Old Testament. At least it prepares us for that. So if this is right, then to creation, providence, and general revelation, we may add that Christ is the organ of special revelation. We move on to John chapter 8, verse 56. The Lord says to the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Calvin aptly paraphrases the Lord's meaning here. Abraham had no other object during his whole life than to see my kingdom flourish. He longed for me when I was absent. You, Pharisees, despise me when I am present. From Abraham's perspective, this verse is looking to the future, but we can say this. Christ is the object of faith for Old Testament saints. The same as it can be said of Hebrews 11.26. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. It's difficult for us to envisage exactly what Abraham and Moses knew of Christ. What is clear, as we shall see later, is that the Son of God did appear to both these men during their lifetimes. Isaiah 2, according to John 12.41, saw Christ's glory and spoke of him on the occasion of his vision of the Lord in the temple, in Isaiah chapter 6. John specifically refers this to Isaiah seeing Christ. We see here the holiness of the Lord, the sense of unworthiness engendered in Isaiah, the promise and experience of atonement, and the commission to prophesy to the people of Israel. So here surely is the Lord, whom John says is Christ, as prophet, priest, and king, in that one section. So I'm not going to give you time to look up all these references. I've got far too much to get through. So you'll have to make a note of them. We can't have a Bible study. It would be nice if we could, uh, but questions will come afterwards. Now we turn to the experience of Moses, according to Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, verses 30 to 38. An angel appeared to Moses in the flames of the burning bush near Mount Sinai. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. God, through or by the hands of this angel, sent Moses to be the ruler and deliverer of his people. In Exodus itself, at the account of this incident, at chapter 3, verse 2, we read, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire out of the midst of a bush. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. Gerhardus Voss regards this calling of God out of the bush as sufficient proof of the identity of the angel 
with God. Now, the identification of the Lord with the angel certainly seems to be direct in the Exodus account. The Lord speaks of the place where Moses is standing as holy ground. Moses hides his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Stephen continues in Acts 7. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness. That This is the one being Moses. With the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. So Moses received living oracles from this angel to give to us. Now the occasion must be the giving of the law. And some suggest that Stephen is referring to a tradition to which the New Testament testifies that the law was given through angels. Now it's worth referring at this point to another relevant passage. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 25 and 26. Which reads... See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now in Hebrews chapter 12, who is this who warned the Israelites on earth, whose voice shook the earth? Well, he is the same one whose voice now warns from heaven. It's not Moses. Was it an angel? If so, a created angel or a divine angel? John Owen argues from the text and from the Sinai account in Exodus 19 and 20 that the one who spoke was by nature God and by office an angel. Listen to Owen's conclusion. Wherefore he that then spake on earth who gave those divine oracles was none other but the Son of God himself. What is purely divine was proper to his person, and what was of condescension belonged unto him in a way of office. As he, this is the angel who gave the law from Mount Sinai, was the angel of the covenant. That's a reference to Christ from Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 in whom was the name of God. And that's a reference to the angel of the presence or the angel of the Lord from Exodus 23, verse 21. Owen is very clearly saying here that the law came from God, but God who spoke at Sinai was the Son of God, the prophet of his people. And I do think this is an interesting point, particularly in light of some who would try to uh, divide the law of the Old Testament and the law of the New Testament and the, the law of Christ from the from the Ten Commandments, that it was actually Christ who gave the Ten Commandments according to this interpretation. It's the Son of God who spoke. He was the divine angel. So, going back to Acts chapter 7, where we started, although taken on their own, Stephen's references to an angel could be interpreted as a created angel, when you look at the Exodus passage and Hebrews 12, they strongly argue the divinity of the angel who spoke with Moses. A key passage is the one that uh, I asked to be read at the beginning of this uh, lecture, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. Speaking of Israel in the wilderness, Paul writes, And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. There are two issues. The first is what is meant by spiritual. Surely the bread and water are called spiritual because... Supernaturally provided. 
Paul isn't suggesting that Christ gave them spiritual water in the sense of eternal life, which is the way that we think of that in the New Testament, for he was not pleased with most of them. It's not spiritual, eternal life that that is given to all of the Israelites. He is simply saying that supernaturally Christ met their needs in the wilderness. Now, the second question, perhaps more pertinent to this subject, is in what sense was the rock Christ? Charles Hodge says this, not that Christ appeared under the form of a rock, nor that the rock was a type of Christ, for that does not suit the connection. The idea is not that they drank of the typical rock, it was not the type, but the anti-type that supplied their wants. Now, do you see the distinction that he's drawing there? The rock isn't a type of Christ, it was the anti-type, it was Christ himself who supplied the wants of the people in the wilderness. He says the expression rock is simply figurative. Christ was the rock in the same sense that he is the vine. He was the source of all support which the Israelites enjoyed during their journey in the wilderness. To say the rock here is a type of Christ would be to miss the point. The rock was Christ, not a type of Christ. It was, as Hodge says, the anti-type who sustained Israel. Now, a further reference of note in this chapter is verse 9. The best textual tradition has we should not put Christ to the test. And I I told our chairman that I'd be at some point critiquing the NIV translation at this point. Um, Because it is Christ. The Lord is in some manuscripts, but Christ is the better tested um, manuscript tradition. Um, As some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. The Lord, of course, doesn't destroy the analogy, but it's much clearer when Christ is put there, that it's, it's definitely the second person that it's appealing to. In other words, it was Christ against whom the ancient Israelites rebelled. One more passage, though textually less secure, is Jude verse 5, where we read that the Lord, or in some early manuscripts, Jesus delivered his people out of Egypt. Now, there is enough in these references to show not only Christ's pre-existence, which isn't the main point in the context, but that he was active, not only in creation, providence, general revelation, special revelation, but in this context, supremely in the redemption of his people in the Old Testament. Charles Hodge is in no doubt in his comments on 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. He who appeared to Moses and announced himself as Jehovah, the God of Abraham, who commissioned him to go to Pharaoh, who delivered the people out of Egypt, who appeared on Horeb, Sinai, who led the people through the wilderness, who dwelt in the temple, who manifested himself to Isaiah, who is to appear personally in the fullness of time, is the person who was born of a virgin and manifested himself in the flesh. Likewise, John Calvin. That is then regarded as a settled point, that that angel who appeared to Moses in the bush was the Son of God and was even then the guide of the church of which he was the head. There's one further very important New Testament text to examine, and that is John chapter 1, verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. God only begotten, who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared him. I'm using there Gerhardus Voss's own translation. You won't find that in the ESV or the NIV. Now, this text gives us a principle of interpretation as we examine Old Testament appearances of God and ask, Who is this? More precisely, if this is God, which person 
of the Trinity. Now, we're expressly looking at the Old Testament through New Testament eyes now, and there's nothing wrong in that. Um, don't think it's, uh, don't, don't be fooled by, by some scholarship that suggests that it's cheating to look at the Old Testament through New Testament eyes. We have a New Testament, um, and uh, we shouldn't be embarrassed to do that, as long as we don't assume that the same New Testament lenses were available to all those in the Old Testament period. Uh, but we do so, we look back gladly and look at the old in the light of the new. Now, at face value, John 1.18 means that any visible manifestation of God is to be taken as the Son, not the Father or the Spirit. You can look at that in conjunction with Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, where God says to Moses, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Yet people did see God and live. Jacob, Moses himself, Gideon, the parents of Samson. Is this not God only begotten, making him known? If anyone is to see God, it must be in Christ, under whatever dispensation that may be, including the consummation. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Calvin asserts that he, we should set it down, quotes, for a surety that there was never since the beginning any communication between God and man save only by Christ. For we have nothing to do with God unless the mediator be present to purchase his favor for us. Shall I read that again? We have nothing to do with God unless the mediator be present to purchase his favor for us. Let me put that straight to you. If you want to know God and you haven't come to him humbly through Christ, trusting in him and his shed blood and his precious completed work on the cross, you do not know God. And if you would call yourself a Christian and at peace with God and have assurance of eternal life and the forgiveness of sins, then you must trust in Christ and come to God only through Christ and no other way. Christ is the necessary revealer because we need a mediator. We are sinners. We cannot see the face of God. And that's a good theological yardstick to hold in mind as we come to look at the theophanies of the Old Testament. So, look now at theophany. Since the fall, God has been unfolding in history his eternal purpose of redemption. The saving of a people for his possession and glory. His design is to make his abode with his people. And all redemptive revelation works towards the accomplishment of that plan. Theophany is a particular form of revelation. It can be defined broadly as a visible manifestation of God prior to the Incarnation. When these appearances are in human form, most notably in the form of the angel of the Lord, the word Christophany is sometimes used. Now, to avoid confusion, I'm going to use the term theophany and add in human form or something like that where necessary. That's not because I do not believe these were appearances of Christ, but because I don't want to exclude any theophany from being the possibility of being an appearance of the Son of God. So I'd rather use the general term theophany and, if possible, when, when necessary, narrow it down by the phrase human form. Some distinctions are in order. Theophany in human form is distinguished, for example, from the cloudy, fiery pillar that accompanied Israel in the wilderness. 
that was a permanent symbol of God's presence with his people at that time and was public in form. Human form theophany are temporary and usually, almost always, to an individual. Another type of non-human theophany was the Shekinah glory that came to abide over the ark related to the cloudy pillar, we believe. The Shekinah glory came to abide over the ark of the covenant at the dedication of the tabernacle and later the temple. The cloud had appeared on Sinai over the tent of meeting. And the fulfillment of these appearances of the glory cloud in the incarnation is suggested by John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So the connection there, the tabernacle and the glory, suggests that John is putting us in mind of the Shekinah glory dwelling fully in Christ. Now these theophanies of the pillar, cloud, were either relatively permanent or restricted to a particular place for a particular purpose. Human form theophanies are intermittent, temporary, and humanly unpredictable. And they have a different purpose, as we shall see. Human form theophany also differs from statements such as God going out from Zaire, which is, for example, is called, which is called an anthropomorphic statement, that uh, a human phrase is attributed or a human action is attributed to God. That isn't theophany as such. But theophany can include the revelation of himself in human form in visions and dreams, that they're, they're visions and dreams in, in terms of revelation are not merely subjective things, um, that there is an objective appearance. And, uh, for example, Jacob at Bethel. Is theophany in human form a type of Christ? Is it right? Do we use it in terms of a type? Now, we might say the appearance of the angel is a type of the incarnation but that the angel himself is not a type of Christ. I'll say that again. The appearance of the angel or the appearance of the Lord is a type of the incarnation as an appearance. But I suggest to see the angel of the Lord as a type of Christ is mistaken simply because, just as in the case of the Lord feeding his people in the desert, this is the Lord. See, and I don't think you can call the Lord himself a type of himself. Uh, see. So, uh, but nonetheless, the theophany as a mode of revelation, as a revelatory event, is typical of the incarnation. Do you see the distinction? That the actual appearance is saying that this Lord will come in a particular way. It foreshadows that unique manner in which Christ will come. And here we need to distinguish human form theophany from the incarnation. The theophanies were appearances of Christ in a created form, but a temporary form. God did not, in theophany, take to himself human nature. In the incarnation, he did, and eternally so. There is that big distinction between theophany and the incarnation. And finally, in this section, human theophany, human form theophany, points to the end of all revelation, the vision of God. Voss says that the theophanies of the patriarchal period must be regarded as incipient fulfillments of God's ultimate purpose, which is to make his abode with man. 
So here are these appearances incipiently fulfilling God's ultimate purpose. Now, I want to look at the Old Testament material concerning theophany. I'll probably go through this, um, well, I hope not too quickly, but uh, I want to spend more time on analysing the nature and significance of them afterwards. But look at some of the Old Testament material on uh, particularly human form theophany. Before the fall, the manner of God's manifestation to his people is not emphasized. Though we read in Genesis 2, for example, he took Adam and put him in the garden and brought the animals to him and took a rib from his side. So every indication is that his presence was real and physical. Voss, again, speaks of an abiding presence of God with man in paradise. After the fall, in Genesis 3, verse 8, we read that Adam and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him those most, that most significant question for each one of us, where are you? Where are you? It was the sound of God walking they heard. The implication is that the Lord's walking with his human creatures was a customary expression of perfect fellowship. Um, As to walk with the Lord is a metaphor of fellowship for for us, for his redeemed people. It is certainly implied this was a physical appearance. He spoke to them individually. He made them garments of animal skins. He, he drove them out of the garden, Genesis 3. E.J. Young says, in his most loving and tender condescension, he, that is the second person of the Trinity, appeared in the form of a man so that he might speak to man as friend to friend. Now, note that while we're concentrating on the form of the appearance... The focus of the text, I suggest, is the content. The words that are said. In terms of content, it is momentous. Here is a visitation of great grace in the promise and strict justice, bringing both the judgment of the curse and the promise of the victory of the woman's seed over the serpents. Moreover, the Son of God is the subject of his own promise. He is both the prophet and the prophesied one. He is both the one who gives God's word to his people and he is the seed of the woman who will himself come. And this, I suggest, is the pattern for redemptive revelation. The Son of God is both the one who is promised and the one who is the medium of special revelation. He is the one who prophesies, promises. Now, when we come to Abraham, we see the greatest concentration of human form theophany in the Bible. We are told in Acts chapter 7, verse 2, that the Lord appeared to Abraham in Ur before he went to Haran. In Genesis 12, 1, the Lord spoke, but apparently did not appear to him in Haran, telling him to leave and go to the land God would show him. The second appearance is in Genesis 12, 7 at Shechem. The Lord appeared to Abraham for the second time. To your offspring I will give this land. Now, 
Some see in Genesis 15, verse 1, a human form theophany. You read there, After this the word of the Lord appeared to Abraham in a vision. And some see there the personal word, a reference to the logos, the, the, the personal word. Um, Calvin is very sober about what he sees in Scripture. He doesn't see everything that other people see. Um, and simply says that here, really, is the word to Abraham accompanied by symbols of God's glory. You can't necessarily read everything into an appearance of the word, word. And, of course, later in that chapter, there is that mysterious non-human theophany where the Lord cuts a covenant with Abraham and passes between the carcasses of the animals and birds in the form of a smoking brazier and a flaming torch, cloud and fire being the symbols of his presence. Now, some 24 years after his entry into the Promised Land, theophany was not a regular occurrence. It wasn't something that Abraham had in in every quiet time. Uh, This is in Genesis 17. The Lord again appears, and uh, he renames Abram Abraham and Sarai Sarah. He establishes circumcision as a sign of the covenant and confirms to Abraham that to Sarah a son will be born. Genesis 18, the Lord appears as an angel with two created angels. Abraham shows them hospitality. The promise is confirmed now in Sarah's hearing. And then later in the chapter, the Lord pleads with the Lord, uh, Abraham pleads with the Lord for the people of Sodom. Isaac was granted two appearances of the Lord, both in Genesis 26, in which the covenant is again confirmed. To Jacob, there were four appearances in dreams at Bethel, and again uh, later on uh, in. assuring him of help against Laban, and then the reality of wrestling with the angel in Genesis 32, and then finally confirming the covenant to Jacob in Genesis 35. We can't leave Genesis without mentioning that beautiful theophany in chapter 16, the appearance of the angel of the Lord to one who is not a patriarch, to Hagar. And this is the first mention of the angel of the Lord. Variously in scripture, described as the angel of God, the angel of his presence in Isaiah, the angel of the covenant in Malachi. Now Genesis 16 has followed Abram's disobedience in having a child by Sarah's slave. The Lord appears to the now distressed Hagar and promises that he will increase her descendants until they are too numerous to count. As an obvious echo of the Abrahamic covenant and part of its purpose is surely to test Abram. Will he still hold to the promise of God Or will he now rely on the birth of Ishmael to whom promises have been made? And the theophany in chapter 17, which is the next chapter, which is about 13 years later than the one to Hagar, is to get Abraham back on the faith track again, reminding him that Isaac is the child of the promise. Nonetheless, to Hagar in Genesis 16, precious comfort is given and the words of promise for the descendants of Ishmael. I have now seen the one who sees me, she says. Now, it's interesting that the very first appearance of the angel of the Lord, he is remembered not so much as the one who is seen, but as the one who sees. In Moses, the visible forms of revelation connected with his work are primarily the angel of Jehovah and the cloudy pillar. We looked at these to some extent already. We meet the angel in Exodus 3.2. Voss says his identity with God is shown by the fact of God's calling unto him out of the bush. 
He is referred to in, the angel is referred in, to in chapter 14, traveling with the Lord's people. And there's a very important passage in Exodus 23, verses 20 and 21, where the Lord promises, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. This is what the Lord says. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. This is no ordinary angel. The name is in him. Signifies God's identification with him. For God's name, says Isaiah, cannot be given to another. He is to be obeyed. He has the authority to withhold forgiveness. He too uh, is the presence the Lord promises to Moses in, in, in Exodus 33, 14 to go with his people after the apostasy of the golden calf. The cloudy, fiery pillar occurs in Exodus 13 and 14. His glory appears on Sinai in cloud and fire in Exodus 19. Again, like devouring fire in the confirming of the covenant in Exodus 24. Jehovah descends from heaven to Moses in the cloud, Exodus 34. His glory fills the tabernacle, Exodus 40, and at the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. Now, moving on into numbers, if anyone is to think that um, seeing the Lord in human form was a sign of your intellectual or spiritual brilliance, remember the story of Balaam. It was his ass who saw the Lord first. In Joshua 5, Joshua sees the divine captain of the Lord's army. In Judges 2, the angel of the Lord reminds the people that he had brought them from Egypt. In Judges 6, Gideon is called by the angel to lead Israel. In chapter 13, the angel appears to Manoah and his wife to announce the birth of Samson. Thereafter, theophany is more infrequent. The Lord appears to Solomon in a dream, 1 Kings 3. He appears as an instrument of God's judgment upon Israel after David counts the fighting men, 1 Chronicles 21, though some, like Bavink, think this is a created angel. An angel of the Lord appears to Sinai, to, to Elijah in his dejection, described as the angel of the Lord later on, is the still small voice of Theophany. The angel of the Lord again speaks to Elijah in 2 Kings 1. He decimates the army of Assyria in 2 Kings 19. One like the sons of the gods appears with Daniel's friends in the flames and an angel shuts the mouth of the lions. The last appearances are in visions of the prophet Zechariah, chapters 1 and 3. T.V. Moore says of this angel that he is that divine person whom we trace all along the history of the Old Testament in every manifestation of God to man in visible form until in the New Testament we find him manifest in the flesh. One vision in chapter 1 of Zechariah shows the Lord to be both with his people and at the same time interceding with the Lord for his people. References to the angel are not always to his appearances. I'll just briefly mention a few. The angel is mentioned as the guide of Abraham's servant in finding a wife for Isaac. He is called by Jacob in his deathbed poem, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. 
He, the angel, speaks from heaven without actually appearing to comfort Hagar in, again in Genesis 21. And to Abraham when he has proved his faithfulness in willing, being willing to offer Isaac in chapter 22. He's called the angel of his presence by Isaiah, chapter 63, verse 9. The angel of the covenant in a specific reference to Christ in the last reference of the Old Testament in Malachi 3.1. In the Psalms, he is the one who encamps around those who fear him and delivers them, Psalm 34, and who drives away the enemies of the Lord, Psalm 35. One further reference to theophany must be noted. Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 deserves to be included. And it means that Abraham, Moses, and Isaiah, the patriarch, the the lawgiver, the prophet, in their different stages of history, all saw the Son of God. And to this the New Testament bears witness. Now the nature and significance of the human form theophanies. Three points on the nature of them and then three points on the significance of them. Their nature, firstly, they were a form of special revelation. This needs to be unpacked a little. A form among other forms. They were not the only form of special revelation. The most obvious was simply the spoken word of the Lord. And to the extent that deeds reveal miracle is another visible form. They were a form of special revelation as opposed to its content. And generally secondary to content. Just read the accounts. Go home. Pour a mug of highlights. Put your slippers on and your feet up and read all the references that I've given you this evening. (laughs) Read the accounts. Do you not concentrate on the words? Does not the message hold center stage? No personal description of the angel are given other than the implication from the impact on the recipient of the revelation that here was someone whom they gradually realized was more than human. If the appearance had come without words, what would have been communicated? And if revelation had come in word only, would anything have been lost? I'm going to leave the answers to those questions for a little later on when I comment on the significance of theophany. But we need to think about that. Why theophany? If the words would have seemed to be the central stage. And they are a form of special revelation. That is gracious, redemptive revelation. The Lord draws near to save. He is above all the messenger of the covenant It was to bring grace and truth that the Son of God came and for which he made God known, John 1, 17 and 18. So a form of special revelation. Secondly, connected with this is the recognition the primary human form theophany was the angel, that is, messenger of the Lord. For some reason, the very same word that's translated in angel is in many versions translated as messenger of the covenant in Malachi 3.1. An angel is simply a messenger. Now, to say that is not to limit his nature to that of a creature, but describes his function. He is a mouthpiece. He has a message to bring. 
in terms of the offices of Christ, he is primarily Christ the prophet of his people. He comes to speak, to assure God's people that their Lord will not leave them without a word. And thirdly on their nature, he was divine and created. The appearances show him to have been identified with God and also distinct from God. Showing him identified with God are that he is directly referred to as God or the Lord, for example, in his appearance to Hagar. Sometimes he refers to himself as God or the Lord, as in Genesis 18.14, other references. So he's referred to as God, he refers to himself. He has the power to promise life. Genesis 16.10. He receives worship. Exodus 3.5, Joshua 5.14. And in Exodus 23.21, he has the prerogative not to forgive rebellion. And the reason for this is that my name is in him. Herman Bavink, in his Doctrine of God, is cautious about deciding between the views of the early fathers, who, like later Protestants, saw the Logos in all passages, though Calvin and Luther saw some as references to a created angel, and the view of Augustine, who saw in the angel a created angel in whom the Lord manifested himself in a special manner. Nonetheless, Bavink concludes... That though distinct from Jehovah, this angel of Jehovah bears the same name, has the same power, effects the same deliverance, dispenses the same blessings, and he is the object of the same adoration. Sounds very much to me like saying he is God. Yet it's also clear that he is distinct from God. He is the angel of the Lord. He speaks of the Lord in the third person, Genesis 18, 14, Judges 6, 12. 13.10, Zechariah 1.12. He appears in human form so that those meeting him have no doubt as to his humanity, even though they soon realize his deity. I love the down-to-earth description given by Manoah's wife in Judges 13.6. A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God. Very awesome. I didn't ask where he came from and he didn't tell me his name. Now, the identity and distinctness need to be explained, and Voss puts it this way. We must assume that behind the twofold representation, there lies a real manifoldness in the inner life of the deity. Putting it in non Vossese, um, that there are two persons, at least, in God. The angel can therefore speak of God in the third person and yet speak as God. Well, three points now on the significance of theophany. If this is the case, against a background where the struggle was to assert monotheism, these revelations of a manifoldness in the life of God are bold in the extreme. The people of God are being prepared for at least two persons in God. The theophanies are therefore laying the foundation for a revelation of God in human form, who nonetheless remains God. A God of transcendence and of immanence. They are being prepared too for a revelation of God in more than one person. 
So the theophanies, in short, are, first, revealing and affirming the personhood of God in that he can take on and appear in human form. And in light of the glimpses of transcendence afforded to us, we might say his infinite personhood. Secondly, they're preparing the way for the revelation of the deity of Christ. Thirdly, they're preparing the way for the revelation of the Trinity. And fourthly, preparing the way for the Incarnation. Now this, of course, is all to do with the form of revelation, quite apart from the content. So it appears that, in the end, the form says a great deal. The medium has quite a message. Second point of significance. Turning to the appearances themselves, the Theophanies came at turning points in redemptive history. And because these people, these individuals, were caught up in God's redemptive work, turning points for those individuals themselves. They were relatively rare, even for Abraham, depending on how you define them. Seven, possibly as few as four. Seven at most, from his call in Ur till the birth of Isaac when he was 100. He died aged 175. So there's a lot of Abraham's life when he did not see Theophany. We don't know exactly the period, but perhaps anything from 25 to 40 years of his life, 50 years of his life. They were specific in purpose. Every appearance of the patriarchs had an element of the covenant in the content of the revelation to reveal or to reaffirm the promises. Even the conversation preceding the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was based in God's personal covenant relationship with Abraham. Truly the angel is the messenger of the covenant. And his appearances foretell that day when the central covenant will be fulfilled. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Third point of significance. The appearances, though relatively brief, intermittent and humanly unpredictable, brought God's presence and comfort to the lives of the people concerned. <coughs> Direction and guidance, assurance of faith, comfort in affliction, hope in distress, encouraging prayer, making election sure, witnessing to adoption, promoting sanctification. All can be seen in the appearances of Christ to his people. All bear witness to a God who says, I love you, in a variety of ways and on a variety of occasions. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He impresses upon the people his existence, his sovereignty, his concern for and his presence with them. This is covenantal love in action. Even when he stretches their faith, as all the children of God have always found, to breaking point, he never overstretches them, though they may have thought he did. He is doing so to bring them to himself. He is a God who wants to be with his people and will enter a hostile and polluted world to accomplish that. A God who, though he has plans for his whole creation, never neglects the least of his servants. Who would care? 
about an Egyptian slave girl who had run away from her mistress. Jehovah does. And comes to her personally. Now I want finally and briefly to look at theophany in the wider context of biblical revelation. Dividing revelation history into three manageable phases. First, before the fall, there were real and apparently bodily manifestations of God in the Garden of Eden, though the form is not emphasized. Secondly, from the fall to Moses, we see the concentration of theophany, or specifically from Abraham to Moses. The revelation accompanies God's redemptive work. It is special revelation. The manner of their appearances, their relative rarity, in comparison, for example, with the impression given of regular and almost commonplace communion before the fall, and their awesomeness are calculated to emphasize what what Voss calls the sacredness of the supernatural. So you can see that in a fallen world, which is essentially alien to God, now then there is something needed to teach us that there is something sacred about about the supernatural. It's a different situation in which which God is coming than he did before the fall. There's a great distance between man and God, morally, spiritually. But the fact that this transcendence of God is combined with imminence, the fact that his greatness, awesomeness, and his, his distance, as it were, is combined with closeness, is testimony to the grace of God. Now, the theophanic revelation is in some ways a primitive form appropriate to the days of individual, though representative, redemption and a pilgrim lifestyle. But it is also a profoundly characteristic form of revelation. One might say quintessential. Here is God with man in fellowship. God in human form not because it's a necessity for him, as if somehow God couldn't appear in other ways, or because he had to appear, or because somehow there is a pre-existing human body which God, as it were, wears like a uniform when he comes to earth. We mustn't ever think of God as preconditioned in that sort of way. It's not because it's a necessity for him, but because he wills to and because we need him to. He comes to us in ways that we can relate to, in ways that are gracious to us. He comes because we need, as Calvin has reminded us, a mediator. It's a mark of grace, typical of that great day when his people will see him face to face. And it points to the nature of conversion, as Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 and 6. Seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And yet this form of revelation was to become less frequent. In the third phase of revelation history from Moses onwards, and particularly after Moses, the great prophet, the prophetic word is the dominant form of revelation. After all, the outward form is not the essence of spiritual self-disclosure and fellowship. even between two human beings. The outward form is 
is not the essence of fellowship. Fellowship between spiritual beings is essentially spiritual, all the more so when one of those persons is God. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. That's not to devalue the physical, for we are certainly body and soul, but to remind us that the heart of communion with God is spiritual, and the word is a more spiritual form of revelation than anything visible. The revealer, meanwhile, is Christ. He who is the eternal word spoke on earth at Sinai to Moses, Hebrews chapter 12, 25 and 26, the passage we looked at and quoted John Owen. 1 Peter 1.11 tells us that it was the spirit of Christ who spoke to the prophets. He, Christ, was the subject of his own promise in Genesis 3.15 and was thereafter always the messenger of grace, always the angel of the covenant who will come to his temple, he whom you desire, as Malachi prophesies. Through the law and the prophets and the writings, he continued to speak of himself. The law spoke of God's righteousness, the ceremonies of his mercy, by which the unapproachable God became approachable in tabernacle and temple. The types give us picture prophecies of him. He was prophesied as the coming Messiah, and as such, he is sung about in the Psalms. So he is the revealer, and at all times the prophesied Christ is with his people. There is reality even in the shadow. But how? How does fulfillment come in the time of promise? How can there be reality in the time of shadow? How could the Old Testament saints, like Abraham and Moses, have real faith in Christ, who was a thousand or fifteen hundred years or two thousand years in the future? How is it not all an empty drama, just for our benefit? John Calvin puts it this way in his commentary on the New Covenant passage in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. To this I answer that the fathers who were formerly regenerated obtained this favor through Christ, so that we may say that it was, as it were, transferred to them from another source. The power then to penetrate into the heart was not inherent in the law, that is, the old covenant or the Mosaic dispensation, but it was a benefit transferred to the law from the gospel. Shall I I unpack that a bit? What uh, Calvin is saying is this, that these people who lived under the period of the law, the Mosaic dispensation, lived under a period of uh, when the the, the regenerating power of God was not, as it were, in that system. The regenerating power of God, of the new covenant, was always a gospel blessing. Always a gospel blessing. It's like, we in this room, um, there is not in this building an inherent source of electrical power, I'm assuming. Uh, But we enjoy light because, as it were, a power is brought from somewhere else to this room, right? From a generating system somewhere else, or the national grid, or whatever, however it works in Newcastle, I don't know. But, so, we, we, as it were, 
borrow something which isn't actually ours in our period of history. There is, there is the, the, the regenerating power, the power of new life, life in Christ, is always something that is from the gospel. But it was transferred to the period of the law. Sometimes you might have heard this uh, called um, proleptic enjoyment of the benefits of Christ. Proleptic, which means to enjoy something in advance. Uh, a little child who sees the Christmas present his mummy and daddy is buying him in November has a proleptic enjoyment of that Christmas present six weeks before the big day. Right? Uh, not the real thing. No, it, it, that's not fair. No, that's, 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 <laughs> it is the real thing, but it's not as it yet in the proper time. Okay? Not in the proper time. Danger of making up illustrations as you go along. You know? So here is, here is the enjoyment of, of the blessings of Christ, experience in anticipation of the full reality. And by transfer to the old, believers under the old covenant enjoyed what is in itself a new covenant blessing. So that is how Abraham rejoiced to see Christ today, even when the knowledge of Christ was so obscure. Unless we lose our sense of perspective, and we're getting so excited now about what was available under the Old Testament, remember the Lord told his disciples, For I tell you, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The prophets, we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted, what, this, the, suffer- the Spirit of Christ predicted the sufferings of Christ. Well, yes, he did. The prophet is also the prophesied one. And the subsequent glories. Abraham saw Christ with faith, and he, he and the hearers of faith had such strong desire for him that they preferred the enjoyment of him to anything else. Indeed, even considered the reproach of Christ. Not the blessings, like the reproach of Christ. Not the good things, not the prosperity, not the health and the wealth and the happiness. The reproach of Christ. Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Faith comes, however, by degrees, and they yet beheld him at a distance, not present, as when he later came down from heaven to men. It was revealed to the prophets that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The difference between the knowledge of an Old Testament believer looking forward to Christ and a New Testament believer looking back, says J.C. Ryle, is the difference of twilight and noon, of winter and summer, of a child and a full-grown man. The question left with me as I concluded this study was, why, if Abraham so much longed for Christ in his relative absence, do I, who have so much greater a revelation, see so poorly, love so coolly, 
and long for his day and crave his kingdom so feebly. Let every preacher remember the plea of the Greeks. Sir, we would see Jesus. And let the disciples' prayer be ours. Lord, increase our faith, the sight of our soul, until the day we see him face to face. Well, now we have an opportunity of asking Mr. Roberts any questions we want to ask or to elaborate what he said or to clarify what he said. And uh, I'm going to invite you to do that. If you have nothing to say, I'll call you by name. (laughs) (laughs) Would you like to elaborate on uh, the passage in 1 John? uh, In him? John 1. John 1, yeah. John 1. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John Uh, 1, verse 4. Could you elaborate on that for us, please? Yes. I'll try to. (laughs) I'll try to. Um, Yes, firstly, in in the context of its place in in that prologue, um, where where John has has said that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. I take that there to to be still talking about the the area of of creation. In other words, not a a salvation light, which I think John 1.9 is. But uh, John is here still, still talking about creation, and he's talking about the light of men. Christ being the light of men in creation. Um, now, uh, it, it seems to me that when we therefore read of, or, or uh, going on to the, 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 the God's, uh, God, Christ's work in Colossians 1 and Hebrews chapter 1, I'll just refer to those verses in Colossians. Um, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, through tho- whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, so therefore, um, Christ is, is, is the one through whom God brought all things into being. Um, Paul, in in Romans chapter 1, speaks of the revelation of God in nature. Uh, For he says, for what can be known, is Revelation 119, uh, Romans 119, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now, I take that if, if there is a, a revelation of, of God in creation, and God has made it known to them, then if Christ is the one in whom all things have been made, it seems a fair inference that um, uh, the God who reveals God, as it were, in creation is actually the Son of God, is, is Christ who is the agent of of, of creation, so I, that that is that is the, where I, I draw that from. I'm not sure I can be much clearer about that as to how it works, but certainly 
because natural revelation is a little bit of a mystery to us because we're living after the fall, and it's at best obscure, but it's, it's, very, it's there and it's real. And, um, you know, the whole question of the, what, what sinners know about God uh, is, is an important issue. Yes. Can you, can you bring the microphone over, please? Your third point on the nature of theophany mm-hmm. was that it was divine and created. Mm-hmm. I couldn't quite understand the created part. Right. Elaborate, please. Yes, um, that what there are both in the, in the, 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 the theophany um, accounts uh, indications that here was God. Uh, he's, he's, in the text, he is sometimes. The angel is, is particularly is directly referred to as God or the Lord. There are also occasions when that same angel refers to the Lord in the third person. So you, you have here a situation where, where one being is referred to as, as God, but clearly he is um, appearing in a, in a created form. Now, perhaps I should, when I say created, um, that is, I don't mean by that the incarnational form of creation, where, where a divine and human nature are brought, are brought together. I'm not talking about that form of creation. But simply the, the human form in which the Son of God appeared was a created form. But, like, like a man when the three men came to see That's him. right, yes, yes. But, but, but uh, perhaps I need just to... Just, yes, I should have perhaps used a different word there, but to show that here you have um, God in, in a, a created appearance... Um, but not yet united to human nature, which he was in the incarnation. So it's a, t- a temporary, a temporary created form. Yeah, yeah. I'm happier with that because when I think of the second person of the Godhead before the incarnation, yes, I can only think of them as being God. Yes, I didn't mean to imply that he. Sorry, no, I didn't mean to imply that the Son of God was was created in any sense. No, no but as an appearance. Thank you. There was a question. There's another question. Well, just a quick... Well, can we hear it first? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Uh, one, of the, a one of the lecturers uh, we had, I forget it was Robert McCollum or William McLeod, said that the Son of God was trying on the clothes for size right. in yes. the Old Testament. Yes, that's nice. Um, I think you were right in saying that, that I mean, one of the trouble with theophanies is how we define theophany, isn't it? And um, there, there are theophanies other than bodily form, um, as you mentioned. Um, so things like the still sm- small voice would have been, you know. Yeah, yeah. But this is where we get into difficulties yeah. because um, I'm thinking of um, Christ in the New Testament. Uh, then there is a, you know, the, the voice uh, of the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Um, and I think one of the difficulties is in seeing manifestations of God um, in, in a, as a theophany, as in a representation of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, it's difficult. Some, you know, you've, comment, you've referred to many commentaries that, uh, commentators that, that that, that differ. Some say, no, this was a created angel. Others say, well, this was an angel of the Lord. Um, it's difficult, isn't it, to define the terms? Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, Do you think it's good to be um, 
Uh, it's good to be certain about some things that, the, that, that, that we can't really be certain about. How do we... <laughs> yes? How do we, how do we tell the difference between a created angel uh, and... Is it good to be certain about things which we can't be certain about? <laughs> That's a question. Yes. yes. Um... I feel like someone being asked Richard Dawkins' definition of faith, though. Um, I think one starts with general principles, John 1.18, um, that if, uh, and take, if, if God appears to man, then it is, it is through Christ. Now, if, if an appearance of an angel in the, in the Old Testament is not evidently God appearing or the Lord appearing, uh, then there are eminently conservative commentators, and one, you know, one mustn't, you don't dismiss men like Herman Bavinck or even John Calvin. They're far more conservative than, than, than some. They're not fanciful in what they see in um, uh, in, in Scripture, um, and and they would say, well, no, here really, I think we we are justified only in seeing a, a created angel. I'm not aware exactly of what they all say about all the appearances. I haven't looked at all the commentaries and everything. Um, but uh, you start off with those basic principles that if uh, God a- a- appears, um, and that in particular where um, you have biblical warrants, such as from 1 Corinthians 10, to see Christ with his people in the Old Testament, um, then such things as the angel and indeed the pillar of cloud. I mean, some A.W. Pink, for example, says that's the representation of the Holy Spirit, and many, many would agree with that. Others would say, well, this is Christ. And sometimes I'm torn between those two. I'm, I, I find it difficult to know exactly. Sometimes one, sometimes the other. Um, but um, if, if you see a, 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 what is that which is clearly of God, and sometimes there are areas where it is slightly doubtful, is this a divine appearance or not? And I think we have to say there can be legitimate difference of opinion between Bible-respecting, Bible-honoring believers in, on, on those issues. So, um, But I think... Um, to see uh, Christ as as the prophet of his people. It was Christ who preached Christ to the prophets, as Peter, 1 Peter says, the spirit of Christ who spoke of the sufferings of Christ. Um, and, and I think to see Christ as the revealer of God is, is, a, is a sound principle. And there will inevitably be areas where we can't be absolutely sure whether it was him or not. Just about Melchizedek, you, you have a perfect description of the Lord Jesus in Hebrews, yes. um, equating it with Melchizedek, king of Salem in the Old Testament. Mm. And you, you haven't mentioned that. I thought, I thought that was a, a classic example of a theophany. Would you not agree? Why was Melchizedek mentioned? <laughs> Can't pronounce it. <laughs> no. Um, because Melchizedek was a type of Christ. He wasn't a theophany. Uh, he he um, was uh, one who is not uh, evidently described as divine in the Old Testament appearance. And yet he is fulfilled by Christ clearly in Hebrews 7 and 8 as um, the great priest of his people. 
Um, and uh, you see, whereas for the same reason that the angel of the Lord is a theophany and not a type, Melchizedek is a type and not a theophany. And yet he was without uh, genealogy, without father, without mm. mother. He was a prophet, a priest, and a king. The mm. whole description seems to... Absolutely. But he wasn't an appearance of Christ. <laughs> yeah. Right. He had a lot of the attributes that were later taken up as a type of Christ. But he wasn't... Uh, he wasn't um, a, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. Yeah. May, may I just recommend a couple of books if you're interested in pursuing these things. Um, Christian Focus produced a book nine, seven years ago by J.A. Borland called Christ in the Old Testament. It should still be available. Um, it's it's uh, a very straightforward account, uh, uh, examination of theophany. Um, J.A. Borland, Christ in the Old Testament. Um, if, you, if you want to read some very warm-hearted, helpful expositions of the Genesis Theophanies, then Jonathan Stephen produced a good book, which is produced by Day One, called Close Encounters with the Son of God. So I'd say for the average, you know, for, for, they're quite accessible to, to the average reader, those two books, both of which are only seven or eight years old, and they go into some of these, these things. Read Babink and Boss and Calvin as well, double means, but... Names again. J.A. Borland, Christ in the Old Testament. And Jonathan Stephen, Close Encounters with the Son of God. Yeah. John, don't turn your back on me. <laughs> you mentioned uh, your final words were, Sir, we would see Jesus. Mm. Um, I can remember writing in my Bible in 1956 when I was at the Keswick Convention. And I think it was George Duncan that said it, that the last great battle will be about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. Are a lot of churches losing out because we're losing Christ? You will hear that. I think they did. Yeah. Um, we sang it in our first hymn that, O Lamb of God now seated on the throne. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is, is on the throne. Uh, that gives me great confidence. That alone gives me confidence. The state of individual churches sometimes gives me joy and sometimes doesn't, including the church of which I'm a pastor. Um, we are at best uh, sinners. And so I, I really don't feel I can comment on churches generally. It would be quite, quite, quite wrong for me to try to do so. Um, but if we have a Christ who is the Christ described in his appearances in the Old Testament, fulfilled in his incarnation, and who is now on the throne of heaven, I think we can be assured that he will not leave his church to languish. He will come to us in his time and when he knows it's right. It's not so much a question, but uh, a point of gratitude, your remarks on prolepsis. I, I found most helpful thinking about David and the Psalms, that are a typical example mm. of that, so much so that we, in fuller revelation, relate to the Psalms so well in our Christian experience. Mm. And I found that so helpful. Thank you.
John. This, this might, might seem like a bit of a daft question, um, but I'm going to ask it partly to play devil's advocate. Um, but I was just thinking, does it really matter which part of the Godhead was in the wind or the, the fire? Is it, are we just arguing over um, words as to which part of the Godhead was being revealed? in each, each of these appearances in the Old Testament? Or is it, is it an important thing that we need to be grasping, that it was Christ? Yeah, that's, that's not a daft question at all. Um, I'm not sure I can summon the, right, the, the best kind of answer, except, I think, to, again, our first priority is to be faithful to what the Bible actually teaches. And if, if the Bible says categorically, and if John wrote... 50 years perhaps after the Lord had ascended to heaven, no one has seen God, but God the only begotten has made him known. Then I think we have to take very seriously the fact that it is in God the Son uh, that we see, we see him. And, uh, you know, let, uh, let us work out uh, the implications from there. Uh, I think we can say... Firstly, that um, if it were the Father, we lose something of the transcendence of God. If it were the Spirit, we lose um, something. Uh, oh, so the other way around. If, it, if, it's the, if it's the Spirit, we lose something of the um, transcendence of God. And if, it's, if it's the Father, we lose something of the imminence of God. Um, but the Son is the one through whom God deals with cre- creation. That's a fundamental principle. And uh, I think, therefore, we, we must protect the nature of the Trinity. And uh, I'm sure you know, theologians could, could work out far more important implications from that. meant to be a controversial statement. We've not had a question from a lady yet. And ladies are permitted to ask questions in this gathering to do nothing else but to ask questions. Question at the back here. I knew I'd provoke one. (laughs) Yes, Tracy? Bearing in mind that Hagar saw the angel of the Lord and Balaam's ass, and it wasn't just as far as we could see the Lord's people... How did they know that they were speaking to the angel of the Lord or the angel of the Lord was speaking to them? (laughs) Did you all hear the question? Well, um, I can't speak for Balaam's ass, but um, it's it's very uh, clear um, that um, the angel of the Lord found her uh, and said, she said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarah, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord said to her, and so forth, and then promised, made promises. And so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing, for she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me, or him who sees me. Um, 
I think it's fair to say in, in this and in the Gideon account and in the Samson, um, the, the, the Samson's parents and so forth, uh, all you have is, is, a, is an awareness. It's rather like Jacob wrestling with the angel. It's not said of said, it's not described how they knew that he was the Lord with them, but just that they did. Um, and I, I think that's probably all, all I could say on that. The ass, well, you'd have to look up Numbers 22, read it yourself and see what you think. I think we're going to call the meeting to a, a close. I'm sure you'd want me to thank Mr. Roberts very much for his very thoughtful, content-packed talk and given us a lot of homework to do. I hope you'll do it. But we are very grateful to you for coming tonight, for travelling all the way from the south of England, and hopefully returning tomorrow. Uh, and we are grateful for that, and for the way you've been able to handle our questions and comments. So we do appreciate that, and thank you very much for being with us tonight.